This is where we do the intro music. This is the. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, you said you had been working on a rap that you wanted to try out. <laughs> you know, I told you that in confidence. Uh, <laughs> a very vulnerable moment. <laughs> so if I were going um, to rap anything, it would be this Gen Z Bible that I. <laughs> and I think it's just thing that. Yeah. Oh, that that I I I loved it. I would I was yeah. gonna try to like mix in some Gen Zism, but like I would just flub it. So, but it was delightful. So the question is, uh, so my kids told me that like, dad, you think this is way too funny. I'm like, I do think this is really funny. This is really funny. Uh, I thought there were some, <laughs> some, some great lines in there. I should, uh, if folks did not see this. I, did you have a, a, uh, fa a favorite verse in there? Adam? Um, I, I think there was like a, we got you fam kind of thing, uh, from the snake that really had me going. Uh, this is, I, I did like it when Adam said, uh, and Adam said, and said, what is up, my mammals? Go forth and vibe this <laughs> Minecraft paradise. <laughs> Go forth and vibe. There's, there's so much good stuff in here. Yeah. Um, and then the, uh, the, the, the divine G caught them in 4K and said, bruh. <laughs> I, also, I, 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 you know, I didn't tell my own. Uh, my son, because like I also found it way too amusing, and I think he would have been really off put by how funny I thought it was. Yes, well, you you picked wisely. I d I did not pick <laughs> wisely, and I just thought it was way too funny, and really insisted on reading way too many verses aloud to my own children. So just... <laughs> where where did this book come from? Uh, the, our colleague Aaron. Uh, Aaron. Aaron. Oh, nice. I guess his maybe brother showed him this. I I've got no idea. I don't know where this this myth, mythical thing came from. And and a bunch of other people were like, "Show me the rest." I'm like, "That's all I've got. All I've got is one page. I don't know." It's, <laughs> it's really amazing. Uh, it was a bit of a debate in this house in, in our house about who wrote it, what generation wrote it, and my kids hmm. in particular believe that like no self-respecting Zoomer wrote this. This is not Gen Z. This has got. It, it, this is where do you. My kids troll me by calling me a boomer, and it really does successfully troll me. I'm really angry about how <laughs> successfully trolled I get every single time. They're like, one of the AARP is kind of nipping at your heels these days, anyway. AARP so. is nipping at my heels. So he's like, one of you boomers wrote it. I'm like, it's, a, I'm, okay. your room. Anyway, sorry. Uh, I, I <laughs> uh, compile times. Welcome. Uh, we got uh, Rain here, Rain Paharia, and Sean Klein, and Steve Klabnik um, to talk. A, a hot topic, uh, compile times. Adam, I thought we may give a just an intro to this about our personal journey through compile times. Because, and maybe this is like part of the problem is that you and I have our expectations set too low. From, yeah. it, it, uh, do you agree with me that tacking, we've got no dovetailing perfectly from the generational conversation? No, I agree. I mean, it is. I think it, it bears explanation that, you know, uh, the, my first job, your first job was at, at Sun Microsystems working on the Solaris kernel and the script to build the thing is called Nightly, Nightly. which, which, te which tells you the frequency at which it is expected to complete. And at one particular dark moment in Sun's history, it took more than 24 hours to compile, <laughs> compile Jeez. absolutely everything. Yeah. on this is... I consider to be a low point in terms of in many different dimensions in terms of like, cause there's a little bit of like your ratio of like system complexity to uh, like to system performance is clearly uh, you overburden the system when it takes more than it. So yeah, I mean, that was kind of our coming with, we're just, you get used to very, certainly to build everything just takes a long time. And you also just get really used to doing uh, 
doing a lot and kind of like pencil and paper. Um, but that's really not the way, I mean, there's a bunch of other software we've developed where we love those quick iterations and the quick iteration becomes really important. And so I confess that when, like, I kind of liked, I mean, liked is a bit too strong, but the fact that Rust did take a long time to compile, I just felt like it's doing, it's like the computer's doing work. It's it's taking a long time to compile because it's solving really hard problems for me. And I kind of thought that was great. This is really yeah. pathetic. It's like no, times. No, I, absolutely, but it also kind of sneaks up on you because it right it, it, for at least most of the things. I mean, everything I've worked on at Oxide, it didn't start off slow. It got slow, and it, and got and slow. It, you, you know you're you're in the 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 pot of water that's you know gradually heating up, and it's hard to to notice that you're cooking. Yeah, and I did. I got to tell you, the, like the first time I really got burned by compile times. So it, with humility, uh, the debugger for Hubris was taking longer and longer and longer to compile. And that is one of those things where it's like, I'm just trying to change the output of something. Like I really, mm -hmm. like that thing needs to be one column over to the right. Like I really do want to like, okay, come on. Like let's see what, is, what does it look like now? What does it look like now? What does it look like now? You really want to do these quick iterations. And the one of the problems there is like anytime you touched anything, the way I'd, it had been kind of architected up to that point. It was, it had to rebuild everything. And, uh, you know, sometimes I feel like it's, gr it's great to have new employees join a company because you feel like you need to get things cleaned up because you're embarrassed. And I'm not sure <laughs> yeah, yeah. Company is coming for dinner. It's like, company's coming for dinner. Up. Company's right. coming for dinner. And I got to like, God, like, let's act like it was. And so I feel like, so Matt Keeter was about to join Oxide. I'm like, he can't join with these kind of compile times. Like, this is no good. I kind of like, I got to scramble to make this thing so you can actually, and so I can't remember if I, if I, I right now, Matt, wherever he is, is thinking like, this is the compile times after you work on it. Like, that was better? Just, like that, what yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's like, I feel bad for you. Uh, but yeah, it used to be a lot worse because the end, and then we made it, we made it better. I think you're right. Like it kind of incrementally gets bad. And then you kind of wake up and you're like, wow, this is taking, these iterations are taking a long time. And then I think, there's also a tension with the, just the size of the repository, right? And, you know, we have tended towards not quite a mono repo, but we've got a, the, the Omicron, our control plane, is a single repository. It's, and it's, it's big. Um, so there's, there's a lot of compile work that, that happens. And I, Sean, I don't know, do you, I mean, you've been uh, kind of with, with Omicron from its, from its very earliest days. So you've kind of felt this thing get, and I know this is an, an issue that has definitely been under your fingernails and spent a lot of time investigating. Do you kind of want to talk about your history with respect to Omicron build times? Yeah, the fact that it is a monorepo is definitely one aspect of it. it. I definitely agree with the like boiling frog in water sort of uh, analogy that was being made here, just because as we were building it up, I mean, build up a small prototype of a control plane that does a few interactions with a database and that exposes an HTTP interface, like it's not so bad. Um, but then you start to grow it, you add authentication systems, you expand kind of feature set you have, as well as how big the interface is that you're exposing. And now you're communicating between a lot of different services. Like it just gets, not only do the build times grow, but it's a lot harder to see and to make it clear which changes are making things worse and where things are slowing down. So um, I don't know, it sort of became a problem of like, uh, especially getting kind of, Crossing a certain threshold of not only improving the build speed was a big factor, but also making sure that we could actually uh, interrogate the build and figure out 
what different aspects of it are causing it to be slower or faster or like what are the different ways that we are building it because building the building the entire control plane under test is very different for building the entire control plane under uh getting ready for production versus building it if sometimes the developers use uh, cargo check commands which don't actually produce artifacts um but they can still do type checking and give you a lot of quick feedback and like each one of these different flavors and different ways to build has kind of different settings and different parameters. And that's something that Rain actually kind of uncovered pretty recently. Uh, that was a big winning point. It was unifying a lot of that stuff. But yeah, that 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 sort of aspect of um, being able to kind of ask the system, why are you taking so long, is one of the most important parts of all of this for getting to the bottom of what's going on. Totally. Yeah, and it, and also kind of before we get to get to some of our methodology there, because I think the the absolute times do actually matter, right? Because it feels like the you know once you hit a certain threshold of like I'm not going to sit there and stare at this thing, and I don't know like what that threshold is probably different for different people, but somewhere I don't know somewhere in like the 45 seconds to three minutes, you're like okay. I need to like go off and do something else. And then it's like, actually the build time is not three minutes. It's actually like 38 minutes because you got distracted by something or, you know, you're off on, if you're lucky, you're off like helping out a colleague or engaged in another productive discussion. Uh, I think if you're many of us, you're more likely like, how long was I on that Hacker News thread or what have you? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, because I left because of the build. It's kind of like, you, you know what I mean? It's like, it feels like there's a, uh, I, I found that I got much more productive when I set timers for some of the longer things that we need to go do. Um, and to, my timer would go off. They'd go, okay, wait a minute. My my, my build needs to come out of the oven now. Um, so, I mean, because, Sean, the absolute times do matter, don't you think? I totally, totally agreed. And this is actually, it's a good point of, like, there's many different types of builds. Like, are you checking out the repo for the first time and doing a build from scratch? Or did you edit one file and you want to see what's going on? Um, because I, your comment earlier about like, you know, going to, coming to Rust and feeling like it's doing things, right? It's thinking about the build. It's doing borrow checking. It's doing all this fancy stuff that benefits me as a developer. Um, I, I can empathize with that the first time that you build it. Uh, <laughs> but when you, when you change one file and it's, it's cranking along for, for, as you said, changing a small output or changing something that doesn't feel like it should take that long to build, it becomes a lot more frustrating. And there's kind of that question of like, why? What's going Why? on? Yeah, and and yeah. so Steve, to give us some history here before we get to Rain's big win, the, the the used to be, I think, like actually shortly before I came to Rust, there was no incremental compilation whatsoever, right? I mean, it wasn't there a time when everything had to be rebuilt all the time. Yes, um, and that's like to be clear, that's like uh, each crate would need to be rebuilt individually so like you weren't in that world you weren't like recompiling all of your dependencies every cargo build it's just that like uh this is actually kind of an interesting thing where we have historically used some terminology that's like kind of wrong now because of this because it used to be like what is a crate a crate is a compilation unit because it's the thing you passed to us see but like that's not true anymore because then we added incremental compilation and now compilation units could be much smaller so like uh all that stuff got got tacked on kind of later and makes things a little fuzzy. But yeah, like it used to be even worse. Uh, right. <laughs> well, I think as I, as I gather with like a lot of things, I mean, I showed up to Rust in 2018 and I feel like a lot of things have just gotten suddenly better or maybe just I've got like no self-respect um, and I high threshold for pain because a lot of things that I think had been pain points 
were being very quickly alleviated. Um, and it feels, it's it, not an issue of compile times, but like this has been one of my recurring drums throughout like the description of early Rust history, like that I, I beat on all the time, which is like a lot of the Rubyists who came to Rust in the early days, our function was to tell the systems people you can in fact have nice things. It is in fact possible, right? Like this is kind of the story of cargo in general. Wow, like people were skeptical. Well, this is the second cargo because there was like five different build systems way back then, but this is not about those things right now. But the point is, is like some people would be like, yeah, I'm never going to use that cargo thing because it's a toy and it can't do real systems programming. And then cargo got shipped and they were like, oh my God, I'm never writing a make file again. I, their, their sun comes out, you know, the birds start singing, um, you know, so yeah. You know, it is funny you say that because I do feel like I'd be like, no, 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 we don't deserve nice things. No, no, long build. No, we don't deserve it. We've never had it. It's like, no, no, you can't actually have nice things, actually. And then when you do have nice things, other great things become possible. And Adam, do you use Rust Analyzer? You do, right? No. Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, wait, are you turning the tables on me? Like, I've been, I feel like I've spent the last year and a half trying to convince you to use it. No, I was pretty sure I was trying to convince you to use it, wasn't I? This what is, is going on? This is some new level of gaslighting. No, no, yeah, I love I I use Rust Analyzer. Like, I don't like looking at code reviews on GitHub because I lack the annotations that that Rust Analyzer gives me in in the editor. Yeah, and I I I, I need to. I, that's clearly like amazing, Rust Analyzer, and it is amazing. Should I use Rust Analyzer before or after syntax highlighting? If you had to like stack rank them. Oh, Rust Analyzer over syntax highlighting all day. It's it's okay. way more useful. Yeah, no, it seems like it seems like it'd be it'd be very valuable. There was a possible future where Rust Analyzer would slowly have eaten the compiler, and then at some point that uh, dream died. But I still all, alternate history rusts. I kind of wish that that plan had uh, gone through. So so elaborate on that, Steve. What does that mean? That means that there is the that Rust okay. Analyzer. Yeah. So compiler technology has changed a lot since the Dragon Book. Uh, and so the way that we like teach people how compilers work and the way that a lot of people like think about compilers is like, okay, you, you lex, you parse, you have some sort of AST, you do transformations of the AST, you do code gen, you spit it out. But like the thing is, is that that only works for batch compiling. And the history of especially tooling is that one, you need to really deal with the incremental case because we are now, you know, like running the equivalent of a compiler all the time. And secondly, uh, that like you need to handle malformed input better than a compiler, like a classic batch AOT compiler, you know, um, my friend Tef has this post, he's like, programmers like to read blog posts like they do a compiler would read code. They find the first sentence they disagree with and then bail out and like print an error message. <laughs> and that's like how classic, you know, batch compilers work, right? Is like, here's my error. And maybe they give you some additional ones, but often they're not that great. Uh, and then they go back. But like things like IDE tooling, like it would be really bad experience if you had a typo in your source code and all of the inferred types disappeared from your UI because Rust Analyzer could no longer figure any of that out, right? So we kind of have these like two different things uh, like coming onto compilers. And so uh, specifically the like Roslyn compiler for C Sharp, which eventually kind of ate the classic compiler and replaced it is based on incrementalism upfront. And so um, the Rust compiler uh, was written as a very classic batch compiler originally. And now it is a much more complicated amalgamation of kind of sort of both of them. Uh, I am not as ex not as 
knowledgeable about the compiler internals as I used to be. So I don't wanna make too many sweeping statements and say things that are not entirely true. So please take what I say with a grain of salt. But the point is they added this thing called the query system that's like intended to make it more incremental and like better at those kinds of things. But you could also make the argument that like, this doesn't work well unless you start the project that way from the beginning, because the techniques that you use to implement all these things work differently based on the architecture. Like you're you're changing the fundamental architecture of the system. It is just a different system. You know what I mean? So uh, yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's, and so you kind of mentioned like the ability to. So meanwhile, stuck in the, in the kind of the batch compilation, um, we really need to have the understanding of where all of the time is going. So I guess maybe Sean, do you want to talk about like some of your explorations? Like I said, as a segue into rain here about where is all the time going? So I, 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 I running cargo build and, um, that last step in particular seems to take a long time. What, what's happening there and what, what's some of the tooling that you've used to, to figure out what's happening? Yeah, so like the first tool that I'd recommend, if anyone else is building a Rust project and is kind of in this similar position, um, Cargo Build has a flag that is dash dash timings that's pretty good and it's pretty well documented. Uh, and it can basically give you a build graph, like break down crate by crate. What are, where where are things being built kind of on a linear timeline? Uh, and you can see that output. Uh, and that's pretty useful if you're looking at kind of like a, which one of my crates are taking the longest time to build? Um, that that can be particularly useful if you have like I have a dependency that takes a really long time to build in my small Rust project and it just inflated a lot, or I'm I'm building a bunch of stuff in a workspace but I'm trying to figure out which one of these crates is the one that's actually the long tail. Um, but that sort of stops at a certain granularity. You really get the which crate is it, and then you kind of stop getting answers at that point. You know, okay, I I can see this crate that takes a long time to build and. I'm working on it and so it makes right. sense that it's rebuilding but then like wh why that one what what is actually going on under the hood here um right and and th this is where I, I find the space of like optimizing rust builds really interesting because there are there's not really one answer for where you go next there's a lot of different answers um so uh there and, and, and there are a lot of always a special kind of challenge, right? When there's a lot of different answers because you people will get a, a lot of suggestions of what, they, oh, I think the problem is over here or the problem is over there. It's like, well, you're actually all kind of right to a certain degree, um, but there's, it gives you, I mean, it's great to have a target-rich environment, but it makes it complicated. Yeah, for sure. Um, th and there are a lot of different like signals that you can look at, but a lot of them are like just that, like they are signals, they're proxies for other data. Um, so like a classic one is you can look at tools like cargo LLVM lines or cargo bloat. Like those are great ways of saying like, hey, is my, what are the aspects of my build that are contributing to a large binary size? Um, but that's kind of, that, that sometimes helps. That sometimes helps for finding the spot where your build was actually slower, but it's a proxy, right? Like you're saying, right. I think the things that are really built big, like that, that can help. And that has helped us in several cases where, you know, we used generics in a way that inflated what the compiler was actually working on. And like those tools helped find those cases. Um, and then how did you really solve that problem when you have like, okay, so we're, you know, we're getting more, I mean, more monomorphization than we want. How do we actually go address that? Or how addressable is that? Yeah. It, I, and so there are a lot of different people who have written about this. And Steve, I know you also, you, very, you personally worked through this on our, our, our uh, drop shot, our HTTP server. 
Um, but the kind of classic way of doing this is if you still want to have the same function signatures, like you have, a, let's suppose that you have a function that's generic and it's fully generic, the body, it, generic parameters, whatever the body of the function is, it's just that body. Every single time you call that thing with new generic parameters, you're going to be creating a, basically a new copy of that function. I'm hand wavy because the compiler does different things than that, but that's a rough proxy for how to view it. Um, a really common tool here is you create a very thin shim of a, you have a uh, generic version of that function that calls to a not generic function. Um, so your generic call basically becomes a very, very thin uh, call uh, to a not, not generic function, which means that like you, you do have a bunch of copies of this generic function, right. but it's much, much, much smaller. It's just doing taking your arguments and making a function call with it. Sometimes that's possible, and sometimes that's not possible, or it's very, very painful to refactor code to be able to do that. And have uh, you found that, do you, and presumably a, a small fraction of these give you the biggest possible wins. I would assume it would be, um, I mean, did you find that you can get big wins doing this? In certain cases, uh, I, I hate to do this linked, because it's like, yeah, go for it, Steve. I was going to say, I linked the PR that Sean was referencing a minute ago in the chat. Uh, it is a minus, what is this, minus four plus like, eight line PR, 10 line PR that uh, resulted in like five seconds being knocked off the build times of Omicron. So yeah, occasionally you get yeah. great, le like pretty significant leverage. Of course, yeah. this is always uh, subject to things. This is based off of an optimization called outlining that compilers do. You're basically doing the compiler's job for it deliberately. And so sometimes like all optimizations, it's better and sometimes it's worse. Yeah, going through this experience has honestly, it has like changed my mind with respect to generics before fighting compile times. I was so excited about generics and Rust for the ability to have like good expressibility of different types, um, you know, being able to really have unique types that represent different things and, and fully exploring that part of the type system. But after going through this aspect of build times, I still, I still appreciate that, but it's definitely with a very, very uh, solid grain of salt. Um, Interesting. Where yeah. these things have a cost, and in, in the case that Steve linked, I think that's actually a, a great example of where it like where it worked best, right? Because that's a case where um, we basically had each one of these endpoints that was a generic thing, and the the body of it could be separated out. But depending on how you're passing around generic parameters, it's not always possible to make these refactors. Like um, Steve, I remember you and I worked together on trying to change the generic parameters of one of our crates and we just couldn't detangle the level of generics that was happening there um because yeah, it wasn't as it was simple as like the body was could be made not generic and the the, the signature was like it, it just there were generics that were being passed through for very legitimate reasons um but um yeah sort of as in many ways well, also it, made me more comfortable with the idea of using very judiciously crate objects where it's yeah. appropriate I also need to like, yeah, confess briefly that part of this, part of the attitude that Sean is expressing is like kind of my fault because I basically like put in the book and told everybody and was part of that early culture of like, always use generics and not trade objects, always use generic, and not trade objects. And we didn't like do as good of a job of describing the balance. I still think that ultimately that's like the right call, but I think that many people don't fully appreciate the trade-off partially because of like history and I didn't do a good job of explaining it. So <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you're, are you going to have a tell all retrospective where you, are you going to, this is going to oh, be, God. Like, 
I will tell some things that are retrospective all the time, but of course, not every story gets told. <laughs> right. Uh, so, um, yeah, you need a, um, we'll do a documentary where you can confess it all. Um, the, um, so expand a little bit on, um, before Steve goes full Robert McNamara on us, could you expand a little bit, Steve, um, Sean, on what you mean by the trade objects and where, where you use that now instead of generics? Right. So if you're acting on a object in Rust um, where you really care that that object implements a trait or a set of traits, um, you basically have more or less two choices with how you're going to interact with that object. Let's suppose that you're writing a function that's going to take this thing in. Um, you can make that function generic and operate on a generic impl t version of that trait. Uh, or you can make that function not generic, but it can act on a din version of that trait. Um, so that can be like a reference to a DIN object. If you're doing more complex things with a lifetime, you might need to box that object to make sure that you can actually pass it around. Um, but that that's more or less the trade-off that I'm, I'm discussing here is like, which one of these do you want to take? Do you want to do the DIN object or do you want to act on the generic? And if you're acting on the generic object, then the compiler can successfully basically take the template that you've provided to it and paste in the appropriate type uh, as efficiently as possible uh, at, at compile time. Uh, whereas if you go the DIN route, you are adding a layer of indirection uh, that at runtime will cause uh, an extra lookup, more or less, that's happening. And it will cause, uh, Rust uses fat pointers in this situation, so it's going to keep around. Uh, a, I believe the terminology here is it's going, it still is called a V table in, in Rust, right? Or I don't yeah. know if it's a different term yeah. for it. Yep. Yeah. The, the main significant difference is between the way in which the code is laid out in C++ and in Rust, but it's still a V table and it's still called a V table in both languages. Yeah. And so depending on what your situation is, like if you're writing high, high, high performance code, this can make a difference. I, I would also throw out that in many situations, if you're doing this in code that is also opening a file, communicating over a network, anything like that, the, the cost of whatever you're doing, the, the choice between the template and the trade yeah. object is going to be so, so low and so negligible compared to the other work that's ongoing um, that it probably won't make that much of a difference. But that there is that trade-off to be made, right? And there's always that kind of desire to reach for, well, you don't want to set yourself up for something that's harder to optimize later, but that it, it's sort of that question of, are you optimizing your runtime or are you optimizing your build time? And that classic, at the end of the day, it's kind of speculative until you actually look, because who knows? Maybe, maybe by having generics, if your if your binary size is bigger, you're actually blowing out a cache size. So, um, but that is sort of the trade-off between uh, which one of these you're you're paying for—the generic route or the trade object route. Yeah, the the dog is big in generics, and it's just trying to be like, don't even mention traits. Why are we talking about traits here? <laughs> the, the the runtime cost. Mention the runtime cost. But I also feel, in Sean, to your point about it, in most cases the actual runtime performance difference will be negligible. I do think it's, it's really important that we, one be quantitative about all of this stuff because some of the things that you think are expensive are not as expensive as you might think. And and uh, some there are some very uh, things that are really very costly uh, elsewhere, uh, which we will... Uh, you know, and, and Sean, one of, the th one of the things that you said early on is that one of the things that's most frustrating is when you, the programmer really feel like rust is doing work it doesn't need to go do and i feel like that happens most frequently when you do a build you make a small change 
you do another build, it's like, why are we rebuilding that now? Like, we now seem to be rebuilding a bunch of stuff. And Rain, you had one of these very recently that maybe you can go into depth on where you've got a lot of stuff being rebuilt that you you felt should not have been being rebuilt. Uh, can you go into a little bit about what that problem was and how you debugged it? Yeah. So, um, so I just... Uh, I want to start off by saying that I love cargo. Um, I think cargo <laughs> is fantastic, right? Um, cargo uh, is now a... cargo is moving uncomfortably in its seat. Like, uh, <laughs> what, uh, what's happening? What's what's coming next? Um, so, uh, cargo has a lot of uh, a lot of really really useful features for all sorts of open source uh, scenarios. Like, for example, like it lets you turn individual bits of a particular crate on or off. Um, it lets you uh, cross compile. It lets you do. Uh, it lets you do like many other things that are actually kind of fancy. Um, the thing, the thing though, is that a lot of those features end up actually being pretty pessimal for compile times. And I've at this point, I've spent like probably over a year of my like dev time uh, trying to figure out, okay, how do we make this better? Um, and so um, both at my last role at Meta as well as over here, um, you know, I have spent a long time analyzing, okay, so, so a common situation is that you're in a large workspace or monorepo or whatever you want to call it, and you run cargo build, right? Um, and then something fails, right? Um, let's say something fails, and then you go and run and then you want to, okay, you want to rebuild a particular project. So you run, or particular crate. So you run cargo build dash P with the name of the crate. And all of a sudden, you're not just rebuilding that crate. You're actually rebuilding the entire world. And wow. the reason that happens is because of the way cargo works and specifically cargo's features feature works. Um, the way cargo's feature works is that um, you specify like a set of crates or, or a single crate or whatever to build, and it looks at all of the dependencies and it um, it what it does is that let's say that you have two dependencies A and B, and there's a transitor dependency C, right? Um, now let's say that A depends on C with a particular feature foo, and B depends on C with a particular feature bar, right? Now what happens is that if you build if you build A and B together, then Cargo will unify those features such that C is built with the features foo and bar. But if you build just A separately, then C, um, then you just build C with foo, and if you build B separately, then you build C with bar. So if you do these three builds, you're actually going to build C three times. Now, that doesn't sound too bad at first, right? But um, what happens is that if a if a crate is rebuilt, then all of its dependents are also rebuilt transitively. So, uh, so as, an, as a simple example, um, the syn crate, which is widely used in the Rust ecosystem uh, for syntax parsing, uh, every, basically every proc macro uses it. It has like 15 or so features, right? And I, I don't know the exact number, but it's something like that, right? And uh, a lot of crates that depend on syn actually enable some subset or the other of those 15. Um, so, you know, it's like some proc macros need the ability to uh, visit the Rust tree, some proc macros need like the ability to like serialize and so on, right? Um, so now what happens is that you have this essentially, uh, what, uh, two to the 15 
uh, I think, uh, features, uh, feature yeah. sets that could potentially <laughs> right. be built. Um, and uh, so all of a sudden, you have this like literally combinatorial explosion of yeah. uh, feature, uh, feature sets that can be built. And because Sin is so core, every single thing that depends on Sin also gets rebuilt. So all your proc macros get rebuilt which means that all your proc macros get run again. So anything that imports those or uses those proc macros gets rebuilt and so on. It's honestly like, it is kind of a disastrous scenario at the moment. Like this is, this is like not good at all. And um, so that's the world that, um, you know, kind of when I started looking at the problem, I um, kind of, uh, you know, saw. And so, um, I've built out a whole bunch of tooling, which I can go in more detail about, like, you know, trying to fix this problem and so on. Um, and uh, it turns out that, you know, it does work. It fixes the problems, though uh, it, it ended up actually exposing a whole bunch of other problems that uh, uh, that we found out while uh, while uh, trying to figure out what was going yeah, on. Yeah, right. So if you could describe the tooling just in a little bit of detail so people can know where, you know, boy, I've got this problem. Yeah. Like, how, yeah. how do I alleviate this? Because it feels... Uh, difficult. It feels difficult to alleviate. Yeah. Um, so, all right. So, um, uh, uh, several years ago, um, so, I, so I used to, a long time ago, I used to work on Firefox. And um, uh, so I got pretty intimately familiar with the Mozilla Central Repository. And, you know, even after I stopped working, I still like check it out, browse the source code every so often. Um, and so when they introduced Rust, a thing that I noticed pretty quickly is that they ran into the exact same issue. And so they introduced what they called a workspace hack crate. And the idea behind the workspace hack crate is that it is this crate that is sitting on the side. It is completely useless, except that for certain dependencies, like, for example, Sin, uh, it actually specifies the union of all possible features. Uh, that all uh, all of the dependencies that use sin actually end up requiring. So what uh, and also every single crate in the workspace in in Mozilla Central actually depends on this workspace act crate. Um, and so this you know this uh, this solves the problem to the extent that and and this is managed by hand in Mozilla Central as far as I know. And so this solves the problem to the extent that, you know, there's like a human that is like keeping things up to date because everything depends on workspace hacks. So Sin always gets built with the same features. Um, so I ended up writing a bunch of tooling to actually automate this. Uh, Cargo Hakari. So this is a uh, an automated workspace hack manager that I built out um, and um, it uh, what it does is, um, it basically looks at all of the dependencies and figures out, okay, uh, here are all of the dependencies outside the workspace that are built in more than one way. And then it just puts, uh, just adds lines to the workspace, uh, to the workspaces, uh, to the, sorry, to the createscargo.toml saying, okay, build this with the union of all features. So it's, it's something that gets automatically managed. It's built to also be used in CI to make sure things are kept up to date and so on. And so uh, I switched uh, Omicron over to that um, a few months ago, um, Omicron being our control plane monorepo. And, um, and so, you know, the results, of, uh, the results of that were pretty good. Like, you know, now if you did jump around 
uh, and like, you know, did cargo build, cargo build dash p foo, cargo build dash p bar. Um, and, you know, that did improve build times quite massively. Uh, th there ended up being a whole bunch more that we needed to do to achieve that, but that was kind of the big thrust of uh, what we achieved. Yeah, and that's great, Rain, just because uh, one of the pathologies we were seeing in that Omicron repo is that there's some kinds of work that people kind of didn't want to do, like stuff that should be easy but wasn't, because even doing those narrow kinds of builds took so long. So in taking some of those rapid iterations, Brian, that you were alluding to, just weren't rapid. So it's it's been a it's been a big boon. Yeah, and then I um it's been a big boon and a, a lot of but then Rain we had an issue where you've, you've done all this great work with yeah. Cargo Akari and then we're still rebuilding stuff. You're like, wait a minute, what's I I, I fixed this? <laughs> yeah, so um, <laughs> I feel it's like I've had that feeling like a couple times in my career. It's like, how is this? You you are not allowed to be a problem right now because I've already fixed you. So sorry, problem. Did you not get the memo? You've been fixed. What are you doing still here? Right. So, so that's that. Uh, so, you know, like uh, a coworker filed an issue on me saying, you know, I was expecting Cargo Hakari to fix this, and yet it, it seems better, but it isn't actually completely fixed. Um, so, so to actually diagnose that, I ended up doing a whole bunch of debugging. Um, the tool I ended up using the most is uh, Cargo actually has this uh, thing called a unit graph as uh, an unstable feature. Um, so what you can do with unit graph is, uh, all right, so backing up, right? Um, the way build systems work is that you have what is called a dependency graph, right? So you write out a workspace which has these Cargo.toml files. These Cargo.toml files specify, you know, your... Um, your dependencies and so on. And then what Cargo does as its build system is that it turns this uh, dependency graph into a more fine-grained graph. And that fine-grained graph is what is called a unit graph. Or um, uh, there are other build systems like Buck have this notion as well, and they call that an action graph. So it's basically the same thing. What that ends up doing is that it expresses each step in the build process as an individual atomic step. So um, so, for example, uh, let's say you are building a crate uh, that has a build script, right? So the first step for that needs to be compile the build script. The second step is run the build script. And then the third step is compile the actual crate, right? So, the, so a single uh, dependency turns into three nodes in this unit graph or action graph. So how do you examine this graph? Because this graph actually seems pretty useful because this will actually tell us which dependencies get uh, rebuilt uh, or why dependencies are getting rebuilt. This graph captures things like, you know, like what settings are used, how builds are done, uh, the features that are enabled, and so on. So, uh, so Cargo does, have, does let you spit out a unit graph using this dash dash unit graph option. So I ended up basically examining this unit graph by hand and, and, and discovered a whole bunch of things that were preventing um, objects from being reused again. So one example of a thing that was preventing objects from being reused again uh, is uh, that we, when we build Omicron, we build it and we ship it with panic equals a barge set. So uh, I'll go into a little background there. Um, by default, you have a Rust program, you panic, 
And what happens is that you get this backtrace. You can actually catch this panic, uh, typically. I, it isn't meant as an exception handling mechanism, but you know, <laughs> in some situations, you can use it as an exception handling mechanism. Um, and that is what is called panic equals unwind. Now, uh, when we ship Omicron, we actually ship it with a different panic setting, which is panic equals abort. And what that does is that uh, it actually aborts uh, the build rather than simply unwinding it um, or aborts the process completely, right? So you get a core dump, uh, which is useful, but otherwise uh, the entire process dies and, excuse me, uh, something must bring it up again um, if it's like a service or something. So um, we had set panic equals aborts for both release and dev builds, but um, it turned out that if you're doing a dev build, and that dev build has a proc macro or a build script, then that is always built with panic equals unwind. And the reason that is built with panic equals unwind is that a proc macro is an in-process plugin for the Rust compiler. So if a proc macro is built with panic equals abort and the proc macro panics for whatever reason, then Rust-C would not exist anymore, so it would not be able to provide a useful error message at all. Yeah, um, you know, so, and, yeah. Rain, we, we kind of kicked off talking about yeah. uh, the Gen Z book of Genesis. And I really feel like this is where I felt like we all collectively bit the apple on this one, where we've got proc macros are amazing. But of course, because you get to write software that becomes a part of the build process, but there is a cost to that. And that, and of course, like when you explained it, I'm like, oh, yeah, of course, that makes sense. You would yeah. not want to have panic equals abort. Because then it would be it would be, be bad, basically a bug in a proc macro, a panic in a proc macro that yeah. you actually want to bail out and have an error message would result in just like a psych fault. And exactly, it's not, not really the experience that anyone really wants, especially when you're trying to debug your proc macro. You shouldn't be the and it's you know on the one hand it's like God, I, I wish it were different, but I can see why it's it's the way it is, and um, it's. Um, it's tough. Um, and Rain, can I ask, like, did you, is that just something you kind of knew? Or how did you, how were you able to make the leap from like, wait a minute, I know that there's a different unwind, that a different panic setting for, uh, for proc macros? So um, this was not something I knew before doing this investigation. Um, so I started doing this investigation and I'm like, okay. It looked like there were like seven copies of Surdy JSON being built. And I'm like, why are there seven copies of Surdy JSON being built? So I started looking at all the individual copies and seeing uh, seeing what they said. And so in some cases, it said that those uh, those copies were built with unwind, and in other cases, it felt that those were copies were built with abort. So I started scratching my head. And I'm like, and and I looked at our um, our uh, uh, workspace cargo.toml, which specifies these settings, and it just said panic equals unwind for dev builds. Sorry, panic equals abort for dev builds. So I started looking at it, and I'm like, okay, this is something weird that cargo is doing. And then I literally went to github.com slash rustlang slash cargo, and in the search box up top, I typed in <laughs> unwind. And I, you know, people like, people like hate on GitHub code search these days. I mean, it's... Yeah. I... <laughs> I thought like it, the first result it provided was exactly relevant. Like it was, it showed me that okay, there is actually a line in uh, in cargo 
which forces panic uh, equals unwind for proc macros and build scripts for this exact reason uh, that you know uh, this is a plugin, so it needs to be uh, a bar. It doesn't really work. Yeah, and so were you? I guess were you surprised by that? I mean, you probably had the same reaction we did. It's like, well, I guess I understand it in hindsight, but it's it's I'm I'm disappointed to learn this. Yeah, I was I was definitely. Um, I mean, yeah, the moment I saw the reasoning for it, I'm like, yeah, of course, right? Uh, but, um, but you know, it was definitely surprising coming into it, yeah. Yeah, and then so, and then on that, like we, for that we have to, I mean, there's not an easy resolution on that, right? We have to basically just change our disposition in our debug builds in order to be able to get our, our dev builds in order to, yeah. we need to kind of let the Wookiee win on this one. We can't actually fight with the, how they want to compile proc macros. Yeah, yeah. So we still ship release builds with panic equals abort set, but uh, debug builds do set unwind now. Um, you know, that's the that's the trade off, right? Um, you know, uh, I I you know, I'm fine with it. But you know, one of the reasons we like panic equals abort is that it, there are cases where invariants can end up breaking with panic equals unwind. And I have a long rant about how standard mutexes are the correct mutex. Uh, because of this, uh, which I can go into later, but uh, but you know the the fact is that we have a divergence between dev and prod now, and you know we gotta live with that. Yeah, and a, I mean it's all intention with and and what was the um it, what was the win uh, in terms of like not rebuilding all this stuff? Because I think this is you know the, the best way to get a win in a, in a system is to avoid doing work completely, as opposed to speeding up work, and this avoids a lot of work, right? Yeah, so um, the work that I ended up doing to figure this out, like, and kind of put this to bed once and for all, um, uh, it's 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 hard to give a single number because a lot of it depends on the exact behaviors. But um, there there were like a bunch of cases where uh, so Omicron pull request forty five thirty five, which includes this and a whole bunch of other changes that made this work, and um, you know, like some things that we're taking 20 plus second to rebuild now just took one second. Uh, overall for a common scenario uh, with like four specific runs, I um, this ended up being a 1.26x speed up, which was uh, pretty sweet. Um, so, you know, uh, there's there's like, you know, it, again, like it depends on a lot of it. And as uh, Sean alluded to, like so much of it is like, this. none of this helps with like an individual crate taking a very long time, right? Like this yeah. helps when in like other scenarios. So, you know, we are still dominated by those long poles, but at least we can improve some of these incremental steps a bit. Yeah, interesting. And so, you know, we, talking about proc macros and build scripts, I mean, if people aren't um, familiar, most people have at least heard of proc macros um, and then build scripts are uh, kind of the hard drugs that, that proc macros lead you to, um, I found <laughs> where you could like... Actually, let's and I, I have found that uh, you can bloat your compile times very significantly when you get a little bit of a build script problem, which I may have had at from time to time. You know, I'm trying to kick it, I'm trying to be clean, but you know, every day is a struggle. Um, the, I love build scripts. I mean, I love great. build scripts so much. I want to party right now. I, I got to tell you, like, let's go, let's go into build script right now. I, I, you know, I don't care that I just got out of rehab. I'm ready to roll. Um, I love build scripts. And I kind of feel like the, like the discovery of build, and you know what? Because Cliff showed me build scripts 
and he was regretting it as he was doing it and then immediately regretted it completely. He's like, why am I doing that? This is not, you're not going to handle this information responsibly. And I definitely have not, I feel. So nope. everybody, nope. Sorry, they're just another, but they're just another place where like the handling of inputs and outputs and making sure that you're caching this stuff correctly is just like, it's another area where there's a very particular way to make sure that you can do this right. I, I encountered that like this yesterday, actually, where um, if you have a build script where the dependencies of the build script change, but your build script, let's suppose that it's emitting some artifacts, like some output, if that output is exactly the same, even though the dependencies to your build script have changed, everything downstream from that will require recompilation, even though the build oh, yeah, script is emitting the exact same artifact. Yep. I, it's avoidable. You can get around this, but like it requires some careful setup to do. Um, and it's definitely not like by default, you recompile the world. Yeah, that's interesting. And and it would be, a, it's kind of a surprising result. And so Sean, I know you've also spent some time just on the performance of proc macros. Um, what were some of the things that, that you found in terms of, of what affected build times there? And 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 actually, how did you find that stuff? Because again, it's, it, it, I think that's half the trick here or more is like the tooling to actually understand where we're actually spending time. So um, for proc macros in particular, this is kind of one of the areas where uh, understanding within a single crate's timing where time is going. Building a proc macro crate, it, that's something where you can see building that crate itself. You can usually get that information from um, something like the cargo build dash dash timings flag. But if you're using proc macros, like let's say that you have a bunch of calls to Serity, um, you're, you're using Serity derive in a bunch of your code, um, you're using Serity JSON, you're, you're using a bunch of derives. That's, that's a pretty common thing to do. How much does that cost you? Um, that sort of information that would come in the form of uh, that single crate build time. Um, so this is kind of a good good segue from what we were discussing earlier, where I, we were talking about like generics and the cost, the the, the the binary size of how much that generic costs. Um, but that's, as I mentioned earlier, like that's a proxy for the real signal, which is like, why is it taking so long to build? Um, right. And if you actually want to get information about why is a single crate taking long to build, uh, Cargo actually does provide a self-profiling flag that's pretty decent here. Uh, I, I, I really want to see more tooling built around this. I personally want to build more tooling around how to interpret this because the feedback is really powerful, um, but it requires some analysis to make use of it. Uh, so the, the cargo build, the, the, I believe it's a rusty flag that's uh, self-profiling. You can ask for arguments to this thing. And you can basically get out a, um, a JSON file that has descriptions uh, in a timeline of like where every single step along the way uh, the compiler was working on things. Um, and if you do this with like the default arguments, it basically gives you the names of a bunch of internal compiler passes, which is not that useful um, because like seeing oh, code gem and LLVM passes took up 90% of the time of building this crate is not that informative. Like, it's a little informative, but it's not as informative of, as, like, which module were you working on? Like, what functions were you actually doing work on to produce the thing that you produced? Um, so you have to kind of massage this thing to get specific output, but you can get that insight there about, like, hey, this is actually what is going on inside the, the build. Um, Part of the reason that I want more better tooling around this is that this the, the output of this thing is a JSON file, and there are ways there are some tools built around it. Like Summarize is one, uh, and I can give a, a link in the chat as well to kind of where the family of tooling is around this. Um, but 
it, if you have a large crate that's filled with a bunch of stuff that's taking a while to build, you're trying to figure out like where are the slowest spots. You you basically are then you need to go take that JSON file and do an analysis on it and figure out like what is optimizable and kind of run your own summations on different submodules and figure out like what are the common patterns. But that the next steps there is pretty much you're on your own with that JSON file. Right. Right. You're definitely off road at that point. But I mean, it must be, I mean, wild in terms of the amount of information you're getting out of the compiler about what's going where. Uh, what did you discover about that? I mean, what in terms of what, when you have you been able to go into that and, and make progress on, on where time is being spent? Well, the first thing I discovered on it was that if uh, you ask for the cargo self-profiling to run on a crate like our control uh, on something like our control plane, um, and you do it without asking for any arguments, it gives you output that's like in the tens to hundreds of megabytes. Um, but if you ask it to actually profile the arguments and tell me, okay, actually identify when you're working on compiling every type, every every function, like write down the function you're working on and when. Um, then it goes up into the gigabytes range of size, and there was a U32 overflow that we bumped into. Uh, so, which I just I find this like so poetic, right? Of like, of course, like you're you're it's a crate that's emitting a bunch of output. You're doing a bunch of stuff. Isn't that the type of thing that you'd want to be optimizing? Like, I get that if you can have like a simple reproducible case, you can put into like a hell like a hello.rs file and just do that. That like that would be useful if you're trying to like write a repro case for the compiler. But if you're actually trying to analyze a real crate that's very large, like haven't other people bumped into this? But anyway, so that's that's fixed on nightly right now, and that will be oh, rolling right. into the next stable release. So everyone else can look forward to that and not bump into the same problem. Um, but yeah, that. That's part of why I think more tooling needs to be built here is because like it is kind of difficult to analyze that file right now. Like I think it contains all the information that one would need, but like you get a very, very narrow slice of what you're actually working on on the system. And I think the tools to kind of give you aggregates based on modules and give you aggregates based on functions, especially for the case of like you're deriving something. So the symbols are a lot more specific to what are you where you happen to use that derive. Um like if I tried to give you an answer for like what is the cost of using Serity derive and of, of deriving serialize and deserialize across all the structs in in our crate, I'd love to give an answer for like roughly this is how much of the total time was spent doing that. But that it's not really easy to do right out of the box. You've got to write tooling that that is able to inter to interpret it. Yeah, yeah, which I think is going to be that's an area where I'm interested in making investments over the next few months, and I I, I think that's something where if anyone else is interested that's listening to this that has similar Rust projects where they want to get better insight there, I that's a I would point you all toward that direction because I think there's a lot of low hanging fruit here because um, this tool is really really powerful for getting that good analysis on a, a large crate, um, but it it's it it needs more support. Well, and I think it's fair to say that more and more people are going to run into these kinds of issues. I mean, there's going to be more and more demand for this kind of tooling as uh, – because I think that, you know, for uh, – I, I mean, obviously there are organizations that have had Rust in, in production longer than we have here at Oxide. But I think for a lot of things, we're, we're kind of like relatively close to the – I mean, just as your, your U32 overflow indicates. So it's like that's a, it's a good indicator that, that you're – towards the the leading edge of something it's like okay i am um but i think a lot more are are coming as we as we you know there's so many advantages for software and the large for this it's just, that, that this feels like a um 
something that a lot of other people are going to are going to want to hit are going to hit and are going to want to get resolved. Sean, as you were describing some of the things you were hitting with Surti, it really sort of took the bloom off the rose a little bit for me. Like I view Surti as this unassailable marvel. But then as you started to explain some of the the extreme use of generics and and you know what the code actually turns into, it did sort of make it me look at it in a different light. And and so I'd love to hear more about like your analysis of Surti and then also some of the other crates you kicked over as potential alternatives. Yeah, so I, I definitely looked into a few of them. I don't I don't really think we've pulled the trigger on any of them yet, but it sort of has opened my eyes to, oh, I get it, I, I get it now why a lot of these alternatives exist. Like I didn't really understand why like Serity seems like great if you can use it, it's so flexible. Like, why would you need something like mini Serity? It seems like it's just less useful, right? Or like maybe maybe you have some environment where like you really, really care about a really limited set of things, but like why would I care about something like that if Serity is working for me? Um you sort of have to uh, kind of accept that there is like the a, a trade-off that you're making there for generality versus having code that is not generic that fits a specific use case that doesn't cause increased code generation um, and that can act uh, over more generic objects. Like it's just going to take sure. less time to compile. Yeah, it's like yeah, sure. All of our API uh, objects could be serialized into Seabor or something. But we don't like we always serialize into JSON. So there's a bunch of generic system that we frankly don't need. So I also want to like, I think part of maybe what you're experiencing, Adam, too, is this like the back and forth between these things. Like think back to your old C using self and be like, add a couple lines of code and you get a fully fledged, super fast parser for your custom struct with no work. Totally like, magic. Now, yeah, but now that's like, like normal. And so we're starting to deal with some of the downsides of how those things are implemented. But like, those are only because everything was so wonderful. Like I, like, but, but at Rust 1.0, proc macros weren't in the language. Like one of the largest uses of Nightly was people using compiler plugins, which is the predecessor to proc macros, because these use cases were good enough, but like also because they were built around compiler internals, they broke constantly. And it was a huge mm. pain in the butt, but they were like so valuable that people suffered all this different kinds of pain to end up actually using them. And then like, like Rust 115 was like a really, really big important release. Uh, because it was like the thing that stabilized derive, uh, if I remember that correctly, it's been many years by now, but like that was a huge day. And like, right after that, like nightly usage dropped significantly because people could actually move on to stable for these kinds of use cases. And so I think there's like a natural back and forth, right? Where you like, you get new functionality and then it becomes the new normal. And then you're like, why do I got to pay all these downsides for this thing? But it's also worth remembering that like before this world, we also had downsides and in many ways they were, uh, you know, worse. Oh, Steve, are, are, and, and, are you telling us it, that we're re we're ready for the truth that there are no zero cost abstractions? That that was a lie that I had to tell you in order. To, so it's it, funny because even Bjorn and the like C plus people have been trying to use zero overhead abstractions late, like more more recently. And by more recently, I mean I think like the last ten years or so. But the 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 meme was so strong that like nobody uh, changes that um, because everything has a cost. It's true. Uh, so it's like. It's about where that cost is allocated. I, and, I, and I think that like on balance, I also feel that the for so many of these things, it's that the the pain points are going to only happen at scale. And I think that Rust is so much better on so many of these things than than other languages and environments. So I think it is it is almost 
it's almost, I don't know, reassuring Adam in a strange way that, that you're disappointed by, you're just, you're just learning the truth. You're, uh, your parents totally are, I think your parents are, I think it's just, I think it's just that I found so much unequivocal beauty in certain, I mean, as you're saying, Steve, and then to find that there was a perhaps hidden cost. I don't know. It's just surprising. Not, not that it takes any of the beauty away, but just makes you think in some circumstances, it's not going to be the right tool. Um, and there are reasons for, there, there are trade-offs for the application. There are places where I want MIDI certainty or I'd want, you know, some other kind of library. Yeah. When it's kind of, it's kind of what you were saying too, about it kind of like th- the giving you a perspective on, you know, generics versus traits and like these things become like, all right, I, these are different tools in the toolboxes at different times. And um, I, I may want, one or the other for different reasons. Yeah, and I think I'm I'm coming here being a little bit critical of things like, well, what about all those cases where you're deriving things? What about cases where you're generating code? What about cases where you're generic? Like, and part of the reason that I'm critical here is because I have that mindset on of like, I'm analyzing code and trying to find things that are potentially offenders that cause the compiler to spend a lot of time churning here. Um, but like, I, I do want to back up a second and say, I, I love Serdy. It's a great tool, right? Like, it's very, very useful. And, like, I've reached for it, and I will continue reaching for it in the future as well. It's just, yeah, totally understanding that these things have costs. When how I, can we that we just reduce these costs as much as we can? I mean, not, you know. Sorry, Rain. I think you're trying to get in there. Oh, oh, I was just, I was just going to say that, you know, I, I, I really love Serdy. My, my biggest concern just tends to be that, you know, we have kind of, Surdy as the ecosystem has committed to this whole like it's like a it's like a commitment that has been made is like the whole like pretty much every Rust crate supports Surdy in some fashion or the other. And so we have, you know, all of this baked in. So we have gone down this monomorphization path. If we want to switch to something like Mini Surdy, which actually uses DIN like trade objects using DIN and stuff, then all of a sudden we have to like, you know, kind of redo all of this work across the ecosystem. And the commitment is like, that's the thing that, you know, kind of just chew on me a bit. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And then, um, Sean, you also discovered that, um, link times. So we, we generate large static executables here with rust and that puts new pressure on the linker. Do you want to talk about some of the stuff you found there? Yeah, so this is an interesting case where we've actually bumped into issues that are actually kind of more platform specific. Um, So we've been talking a lot about like build speed, right? We're talking about different build configurations, which kind of is all lumped into the category of like you walk up to a machine and you run cargo build, but that's only been part of the picture for us internally at Oxide. And like the thing that we really are trying to track at the end of the day is like, what is that developer velocity experience, which is more than just building, right? It's how long does it take to build your code? How long does it take to package it up and put it onto a target machine and deploy that machine and get a get a control plane up and running and get the whole system running and boot VMs and then ship things onto GitHub and get your PRs merged and move on with your life, right? And the whole process here, and there's a lot of different faces to this. Um, so this is one of those areas where uh, we definitely noticed a distinction between folks that were developing on some platforms versus others. Um, and this is one of those cases uh, where, it, admittedly, I think a lot of the credit goes to a handful of other folks that did more of this investigation. I know Rai did a lot of this. I know uh, Dan Cross, who I think is here today in the audience, also, also did quite a bit of time uh, analysis here as well. Um, but this is one of those cases where we, uh, for 
a certain number of crates that are operating on a very, very large number of files. I mean, we have our control plane. It is it is split into multiple crates, but at the end of the day, there is one binary that is being built that's linking together all of these different artifacts from different crates. On certain operating systems, we would notice the, the build time would tank at the end. It would be a bottleneck of like many minutes to actually f finish building this binary. Um, and that is sort of the thing where if you're doing that, you definitely would hit this on any single character change, right? You'd have to go through this process of many minutes to rebuild this binary. And that, that was just very painful for developers going through that experience. Um, so yeah, I can, I can jump into more detail on, on sort of what we found out within that linker if you want, but yeah. Um, which in terms of like, so in, in, in kind of what our experiences have been with, with mold and, um, mold being an alternative linker, if you, if yeah. You so, so to Cargo's and Rusty's credit, it's actually fairly straightforward to swap what linker you want to use. Like this was something where we had like the theory of maybe the link time is slow and this is an area uh, that we can improve and we could get like pretty good times to compare LD versus LLD versus mold on different operating systems. Um, it, there's a small asterisk in there of on certain systems that actually took a little bit of extra work to get mold to actually build. Um, but it wasn't too bad, like a, a couple patches and we could get there. Um, and in particular on that case, if you're having, if you're building a lot of crates, each individual one, it doesn't make much of a difference. But if you're talking about that situation where you are assembling a binary that itself is composed of many crates that has pulling all of these large pieces together, that's you're running one large service that is the amalgamation of many other pieces. Um, we saw a huge, huge difference there. Uh, LLD versus LD, we saw a significant jump, and mold was basically the best option across all systems that we saw. Like the the time there was quite drastic. It's many minutes worth of difference for for the objects that we're building. In, in rain, you've been a long time mold user. Mold is new to me, I, Adam. I don't know how how uh, how mold fluent you are. I'm I'm a, I'm a mold novice as well. Um, but rain, you you mentioned you you integrated into your into your dev flow a long time ago. Yeah, I um, think I saw a link on like Hacker News or something, and I was excited to try it out. Uh, Mold is like, I, I just like, I love how easy Mold is to integrate into Rust. Like it's, it's so smooth. Uh, there's two separate ways to do it. Um, each one of them has upsides and downsides. And so I started using it for my personal builds and stuff like I don't know, three or four years ago. Um, you know, it's always, it's never had a bug well, actually, no. There was one case where it started crashing, but then I had to, uh, then I think uh, the author released a hotfix. But in general, it's been like a super smooth process, and you know, I've been getting everyone who's you know who's willing to listen. I've been getting trying to get them onto mold. Well, I think we got some pretty good. I mean, the, the numbers are really yeah. pretty astonishingly good. I mean, it makes definitely use of multiple cores. And um, Dan said in the chat that mold is four hundred times faster than a Lumos LD for building Omicron. Yes, it's it is yeah. quite a bit faster on yeah. So. I, on on Linux, I remember like I was building a again like a single large service similar to Omicron. It was like twenty to twenty five x faster on a on a twelve core um, uh, CPU. Yeah, and it will be faster on the you know the more cores you got, the the, the yep. more upside you have there because I mean it, it, I mean historically the system linker has been single threaded because it's not something that. Uh, you know, for a bunch of reasons, I think there was a lot of movement away from static linking towards dynamic linking and a lot of time and energy spent on making dynamic linking um, 
making the app perform really well. Um, and that's when disk space was at a premium. And, uh, you know, there were a bunch of other reasons why we, we kind of were thrust towards memory was more at a premium. Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't know when that started kicking back exactly, but um, whether that was um, where you get these much larger, maybe it was with Go, with much larger statically linked binaries. And I think also people were just kind of sick of the, the dependency hell that you had with shared objects. Um, certainly ones that weren't weren't versioned well. I mean, there were a bunch of, of challenges with the shared objects and kind of the pendulum swung back and it's like actually static linking is really, really important. Um, I think and, um, you know, the, you know, Stan's saying in the chat, it's like, you got these kind of, you know, a full featured system linker. It does really great stuff, but it's actually <laughs> for, for this problem at hand, it's like, actually, we want to just like link really, really fast. And we actually need to do that by, by using multiple cores. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think with Rust, like monomorphization basically forces you for the most part into static linking because yeah. Interesting. Because yeah. you essentially are copying around object code, right? Uh, you don't have a single copy. You have lots of copies of a different function and so on. So, so this kind of ties back into the monomorphization thing, right? Uh, I think those things are pretty closely related. And totally. also, it has like very interesting implications for uh, the GPL. If you uh, start processing through, this is like a very deep, deep hole with lots of implications that have been built over a very long time that are starting to like unravel in ways now. In, in terms of the linking exception with the, the, the GPL? Or yeah, I mean, the, or what Rain was just talking about, like, you know, if you're using a generic in Rust, the library has the, uh, like, sort of template, to use a very overloaded word in this context, like, saved. And then when you, you know, link it against your code, you're, like, then writing code. You know, like, linkers are compilers. Like, the whole separation of these two things is, like, completely history at this point and not due to their, like, actual abilities, you know? Like, link time optimization. Like, linkers are optimizing compilers in a certain sense. Um, but, like, yeah, like, it's it's very unclear, at least to me, and I'm sure there's somebody who maybe in the chat will know of a big giant thing that's written about this, but, like, uh, when you're basically, like, running code at link time and inserting that into a different binary, like, if I use a Rust crate that's GPL'd, uh, is that going to make my project GPL'd, you know? It's, like, uh, there's a lot of, it's sort of all built around the C compilation model, and things that don't do that gets a little weird. Well, I think it's in part because of that ambiguity that in, I mean, crate ecosystem. Like in the crate ecosystem, it is MIT and Apache, right? Um, and in you don't see a lot of GPL. You see LGPL, but you don't. You I don't think that's see the kids for that reason. I, and I include I include the kids as being millennials in this point. I think there's been a industry wide rejection of the GPL, and the rest is just like part of that. Um, unfortunately, sort of. Maybe question mark. I don't know. I have really complicated feelings about this topic. So a whole different episode. Yeah, yeah. I would say I would say not unfortunately. So we can have that. Yeah, we'll have to have that the debate. We can do the, the Lincoln Douglas debate. GPL v MIT. Um, and uh, um, yeah, Brian, did you, did you yep. see there? Um, you know, with regard to proc macros, did you see David Tolney's proposal to compile proc macros into Wasm? And then just to execute mm. the Wasm to generate code. Have you have you been plugged into this at all? No. Where, where do I? Yeah. What? Yeah. I'll put it in the show notes. I, I'm I'm going to give the the simpletons version of the history here, and then I'll let Steve and Sean and Rain clean it up. But I, I think the simple version is I, I I think David has wanted something like this for a very long time, and got so frustrated in about 
uh, June or July, August, sometime during the summer last year, that he sort of surreptitiously built a mechanism, or not surreptitiously, that sounds, it makes it sound nefarious, but he, he built a mechanism into uh, Surdy Derive that included some pre-compiled binaries. And then after a few releases, or, or maybe immediately uh, opinions differ, some folks sniffed this out and weren't that into it. The fact that there were some binary blobs that were executing in these environments. Uh, so there was a big kerfuffle. Uh, I think uh, this kind of change that had been around for a little while was reverted. But then David wrote a great kind of proto RFC, which again, I'll link in the notes. Uh, but Steve Klabnik, how did, how did I do? Is that uh, within kind of 50% of accurate? <laughs> yeah, I think I think you did a pretty good job. I think it's difficult because a lot of this depends on opinions about what happened, and so I think you did a good job of neutrally describing it. When it's very easy to non-neutrally describe it, maybe maybe too neutral. What is it then? <laughs> yeah, but but the the short of it is, you know, at, at, you know, there would be a bunch of changes to Cargo and to Crates.io and so on and so forth, but the result would be your you're not compiling the proc macro and as rain was alluding to you're not recompiling it recompiling it depending on a sundry of different flags and whatever you're just executing this wasm and and you'd also just opt into it like if you want to recompile it go for it if you want to use this wasm binary blob and then a bunch of, a bunch of other benefits you know talk about build.rs it's kind of crazy brian that if you think about like a if you include a random Crates.io dependency that it could run, you know, a built.rs or proc macro code that could do literally anything on your system. Yes, right. It could like, yes. you know, it is amazing. A bunch of secret files and open a network socket and vomit them it to is, it. Yes. Uh, pretty, pretty astounding. Um, so, uh, you know, part of the benefit here would be able to run this stuff in a sandboxed environment. Huh. Yeah, interesting. I can I mean, I could definitely see the appeal. I mean, I. My concern with this kind of stuff is always like, kind of, what if it gets stale or goes wrong, or you know, how do you? Totally. But you know, I, I also, I, I'm so impressed generally with the robustness of the tooling in the Rust ecosystem. I mean, there's just there, um, just, it isn't a lot of that. I, I guess Sean's uh, issues aside, the U32 overflows aside, but generally. Um, the tooling is awfully robust and we, we don't have issues with like, you know, because the, the, you always get worried about like this object was not rebuilt when it should have been. <laughs> to me, it's always much more frightening than we unnecessarily recompile this object when we didn't have to. Um, but maybe that's just, you know, maybe that's just my disposition towards uh, correctness. If I have to choose between correctness and performance, I, I, I still want correctness, but I, I don't think there'd been a lot of problems with that, with, with Rust not recompiling things or being too aggressive with respect to optimizations. So, uh, so Sean, what, what's the kind of the, the, the future here? Um, you mentioned um, getting excited about some of the tooling, uh, some of the profiling and, you know, how you can, you know, making use of that derive now that you've got these kind of bugs fixed uh, in the compiler, being able to build tooling on top of that. I mean, what's the kind of the future for the uh, the, the workflow and dev flow for for Rust? I don't know if this is accurate. I'm going to describe how it feels. It feels like a lot of the tooling that exists around single crate profiling with Rust is built for people who are contributing to Rust C and who want mm. to understand how to make the compiler faster. Um, which I think that's a great disposition, and it's good to, that those folks have useful tools. 
I want the future of this tooling to be, here is your crate that you built, and this is where we spent time building this to be in an easily digestible format that you can, as a author of a crate, understand where each different piece in each module, you can understand where derives are taking place, you can understand the overhead of generics, and that's easy to do kind of navigating through your crate at a module by module level. I think that'd be very, very powerful to have. Right. You want to be able to answer the question, what's taken so long? And exactly. being able to, and I think also like, you know, to date, done a pretty good job of allowing people to opt into asking that question. Because I think there are going to be a lot of Rust developers for, I mean, as, as we talked about at the, at the top, compile time doesn't matter until it does. And, you know, when you're first coming into Rust, you may be like, I'm not sure I see what all the hubbub is about. Like this thing compiles pretty quickly. And, uh, you know, the next thing you know, it no, no longer compiles as quickly because you've um, you've really gone the town on it and you want to be able to, to allow people to easily answer that question and uh, be able to. And, uh, you know, Stephen, you've been playing around with Buck, too. I mean, do you view that as a how important is that to the performance of build times? Um, where are you on that? So it's. I, I know this is purely because we have talked about it uh, a lot of times, but uh, Rain is far more qualified to talk about this topic than I am. I am but a simple baby starting to play uh, with this thing, um, and I'm excited about it. But um, yeah, I, I would actually redirect that question ever so slightly. Uh, sure. Rain. Okay. Talk to you. Yeah. All right. So um, I, I think uh, I, putting. Putting things like Buck2 in context, I think, uh, you know, what uh, Adam mentioned about, like, you know, shipping Wasm for a proc macro or whatever, like, I think that that is a special case of a kind of generic approach to caching and specifically distributed caching, right? So let's say that yeah, we are in a world with fully reproducible builds, right? So you know all your inputs and you know that the output for a particular input for a particular step in the uh, unit graph is exactly the same, right? Um, so I think that a lot of the wins, uh, like kind of a lot of the wins at scale end up being thanks to distributed caching, where you have these caches that are kept warm by, say, CI machines and stuff, and then local developers can just pull those artifacts down, and the build system does that automatically. Um, so... Buck2 is kind of a, um, what I'd like to think of as a totalizing version of that, where what it does is that every, like, so Buck2 is a build system. It's a polyglot build system built out by Meta. It is the successor to Buck1. Uh, Buck1 was written in Java. Um, Buck2 is written in Rust. Uh, Buck is most closely similar to Bazel, if uh, folks have heard of it. Um, Buck, uh, the way Buck and, and Basil and stuff work is that they actually require what they call hermetic builds. So all your inputs must be specified in build files. So you can't depend on anything in the environment. You can't depend on a system compiler. You can't depend on any of those things. And, uh, and in return, you get the ability to do distributed caching, which is absolutely crucial when you're building services that are at Google or Metascale. Um, I, I think Buck2 is great for what it is. Um, and I think that, you know, in many ways, I can see a future where we do switch to it. Um, I think there are some hurdles that w we need to actually look at. So I think one of them is, is that 
as I mentioned earlier, buck two is totalizing, which means that everything, all your dependencies, everything must be expressed in Buck's language so that Buck understands what's going on. That is the only way Buck can work at all. And there is a lot of good tooling built for this. My uh, former coworker, Jeremy Fitzharding, um, built out a tool called Reindeer, which converts cargo, um, cargo.toml uh, files into Buck nodes. Uh, it's pretty oh, great. Wow. Um, so, so for the most part, that works. You have to like manually patch things up here and there, but it generally works. Um, I think the other thing that you have to look out for is that um, we have a lot of tooling that is assumes cargo, uh, mostly out of path dependence. So you know, there's no particular reason it needs to be tied to cargo, but you know, we would have to port all of that tooling to using Buck. And um, an example of that is uh, so in um, in Omicron, we use a test runner called Cargo Next Test. Um, it's a test runner that um, I'm the primary author of. Uh, at the moment, it depends and it's tied pretty intimately to Cargo. That isn't inherently the case. Um, you know, we could spend like three, two, three months making it work against Buck Two. It would be fine. Uh, but you know, that's a that's a you know that's an investment that we would need to make. Yeah, I do love you calling Buck Buck One. Um, it's kind of like the World War One, World War Two distinction. I mean, did they call that the Great Buck before there was Buck Two? Uh, <laughs> the, um, the um, and then, but and that's really interesting about the um, kind of the automated tool because uh, I do find that like the D, I un, I completely understand why these things have their own DSLs, but then the DSL. Um, really makes it uh that just steepens the ramp to get to get onto these things um and i was gonna make a joke earlier actually much earlier in the episode about how with your love of build scripts i'm surprised i have not introduced you to starlark yet um actually uh because in some What's ways that? You... so starlark is the is the the dsl as you said but it's it's actually like a subset of python that uh, both Buck and Basil use to uh, oh, write gotcha. the script part of the build I, scripts. So I got to tell you, the thing that I love about the build scripts is that it's in Rust. That's what is like, I just love. I actually don't love Python. <laughs> Sorry, Python. I don't love Python. I don't love Python either. There is a small discussion on the Buck issue tracker about writing uh, Buck scripts in Rust, but I don't think that's the thing that's going to happen realistically anytime soon. So uh, I, I will tell you that like, and... Uh, I came, you know, I, there've been a handful of times in my career when I thought I was actually going to start crying. Um, and one of them was at the hands of scons, scons, what do we say? Uh, which I feel is like one of the predecessors to these systems. Maybe that's, a, that's an inaccurate read of the lineage of build systems. What's that? It is not an inaccurate read. It's not an inaccurate read. Okay. Uh, and a part of the problem there was that the language is loose and that you are, um, you know, you are having to modify the kind of the scripts of the build system, and there's very little guidance about the the, the flow of execution, and there are no types, and it's just like there's there's nothing that to really. And I was trying to do was just weird enough, and it was just really, you know, you know, I always feel like it's when you feel that you're like I'm very close to getting this working, and then you that goes on for like 13 straight hours. You're like, I'm now actually like, I'm wearing, tears are welling up. I have, I have been convinced that I'm like 10 minutes away from getting this to work for 13 hours. And I, I'm, I think I'm going to start weeping. Um, and then there was an even weirder one, WAF. Do you remember WAF, Steve? 
the I am I don't think I ever used it, but I do know that it exists. It was a it, well Node used it. Um I I mean like build systems that we have discarded, we humanity have discarded. I mean that is a like that's a that's a grim graveyard um of of build systems no longer used but the so yeah, i, I, so I think to, like, to, to like provide a tiny amount of color on like why you originally asked me this question and then i pivoted it to rain is like yeah. basically as part of all this work we've been talking about today i basically and the fact that we've you know one of the first things i did at oxide meaningfully was like work on the build system for hubris and i was like and then omicron sort of kind of has a build system in it too and i was like we're we already have two bespoke build systems and this company's like 30 people uh, and so I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to write the, the, the next standard, you know, like, let's, let's just go back and implement a good build system in Rust. And I did all my research and I was like, wow, uh, these are the papers that I want. And I really like the work of these authors. And then I discovered buck too. And I was like, oh my God, meta paid the people that wrote those papers to implement them. And it's already in Rust even. So never mind. And so I have not used it on meaningful projects yet, which is why with all rain's experience, I, uh, you know went uh like deflected the question there but that's like how i got into this was doing all that research and seeing all those bodies and like looking at what i thought was the best current like theoretical uh setup for all of this and uh but yeah but i've not uh really d used them in production uh in anger let's say yet and so rain this is a very interesting paper so this is yeah. uh build systems all a cart yes. tell me a bit about this paper so, uh, so I believe that this is the paper that Steve was alluding to. Is that right? It is. It is definitely I one of the it. critical yeah. papers that I'm referring. Yes. Like I started converting the code in it to Rust code actively one day. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so this paper actually, um, it's it's really interesting because it's written by these. It's kind of this uh, overlap between academics and industry. Um, and one of the authors is Simon Peyton Jones. That's right, who, yeah, exactly. Uh, so we know where this is going. Um, so uh, what they did is that they actually ended up looking at build systems as used at various places, like you know something like GNU Make, which is you know an early example of a build system. Sorry, uh, uh, Make fans. Um, this uh, and then it also looks at um, uh, Bazel, Buck, and so on, and. And it, and finally, in a in a really I think inspired choice, it actually looks at Excel because Excel is also a build system in the sense that you know it has it has a whole execution graph of here are the uh, cells that depend on these other cells. You, you mean Excel the spreadsheet? I'm like this must be yes. a different Excel. You actually yes. mean the spreadsheet? Yes, oh, yes. And um, Adam just passed out. I think I Adam. Know. I'm so excited right now. <laughs> um, so I, so I think like actually the folks at Microsoft Research have been really interested in Microsoft Excel because in a sense it is the world's most commonly used programming language and it is like orders of magnitude more popular than like you know anything that any of us in industry use, um, and so they ended up looking at Excel as well through this same lens and they found that you could actually break it up. Uh, you could break up, um, you could categorize these all these build systems in a whole bunch of ways. So they they look at four prototypical build systems: um, Make, Excel, Shake, and Bazel. And uh, they look at like what kind of uh, scheduler uh, these build systems have. Uh, another crucial uh, distinction is whether dependencies in these can be are static or dynamic. 
Um, in other words, can nodes in the action graph create more nodes within them so that, you know, can a step produce more steps? Um, and uh, it also looks at things like, you know, whether you can uh, share like distributed caching. So they call that the cloud um, column. So if you look at um, page six, then there's a really nice uh, chart uh, showing that. So um, I thought that this is, this is kind of, I think that this is a really good like way to look at it because it also suggests places where you know various build systems fall short or uh, the trade-offs that build systems makes. And I think one of the big trade-offs in practice does end up being the static versus dynamic dependency um, distinction because uh, who here is a fan of monads? Um, <laughs> um, because what is... Uh, so some build systems are... Um, don't let you create these additional dependencies, and some build systems do. And the build systems that do, uh, in like you know, in academic circles, are actually called monadic build systems because they behave like a monad. Because monad is essentially uh, be the ability to for each individual thing to create more things of that kind. Um, and so, um, so you know, I think just looking at it through those through that lens makes a lot of sense. And you know, Buck Two is like really principally designed in a very principled fashion, um, where it tries to make sure that you know it can use cloud caches and so on, and it tries to use static uh, dependencies as much as possible. But it also has an escape hatch for dynamic dependencies uh, and so on. So it's it's pretty neat. I think uh, you know this. This paper uh, is basically very directly inspired Buck to just just be just by, by the ability to categorize um, the properties of a build system in all these ways. Now, Rain, tell me if this is accurate, but it may bring it full circle. I was asking David Tolney about um, Buck two and how it deals with features. Mm -hmm. He just said we don't exactly we just the features. The end. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. And that is you know that is one of those places where you know oh in an open source environment you. Actually, those features, the ability to specify features like in cargo is very, very useful. Uh, but Buck2 is so designed for the, like, you know, megacorp, like, we all agree on a shared set of li uh, libraries and features. And so, yeah, so, you know, Buck2 Buck just does not have support for features. And that will be a blocker uh, for us to use it. Or we have to think very hard about what we need out of Buck2. What does that mean, Buck2 does not support features? I'm just... I'm, so... I'm... so the way Buck2 works is that you, so right now, like, you know, we use features. Um, so, so these are cargo features, right? So these are optional flags that turn on or off various parts of the, um, of the code, uh, of the code base, right? Like single create, you can see CFG feature equals, um, 30, right, as an example. And then that pulls in, like, that lets you pull in the 30 create. You can turn it off if you don't need the 30 feature and so on. And, um, well, Basil, uh, sorry, well, Basil, as well as Buck and Buck2, don't actually let you say those sorts of things. So you have to say up front, um, I, either I need the 30 feature or I don't need the 30 feature. And mm. um, now it's actually great because at that point, you don't actually like the whole like workspace hack thing becomes like not an issue at all, right? Like, so in that <laughs> sense, it's a real advantage. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, no need to yeah. unify features if you have to like if there are no feature support. So yeah, exactly, it makes sense. Right. exactly. Um, so so that's the you know, but that is one of those trade offs that 
Buck has a very opinionated model of yeah. how it wants the world to be. Yeah, that's really interesting. And then, then the 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 flip side of that is that around building at scale and and compile times, and then a bunch of other advantages to hermetic builds, yeah. of course. So, yeah. um, and it's a it's a trade off. It's, it's a balance as as with all these things. Um, one one funny uh like situation with all of this right now is Buck Two is actually not hermetic by default, but that's basically a bug. But me and several other people who recently got into it were like, oh, we're so glad that you uh, made this design choice because I think it makes it much easier as an on-ramp to get started because you don't need to be fully hermetic. And then you can like, when you do a remote build, it must actually be fully hermetic. And they were like, yeah, we actually thought that was a bug and we're planning on like removing that possibility. And so I still think that's going to happen, but it's kind of like, uh, as again, an example of that like friction and like the way you can deal with it or not deal with it in different ways. Yeah, interesting. And in terms of like how you get that on ramp, I do. Um, I, I think it's definitely interesting to think about these like, totally different ways of of thinking about the build system and can we possibly move from kind of one to the other? Because it does feel like it's a very big decision and requires a lot of investment. Um, so, as Ryan, as you said, like it would not be light for us to move to Buck Two. Uh, yeah, it need to be a big payoff kind of at the end. We are using Buck Two for um, uh, right now. Our our current use of Buck Two, anyway, or what will be a bu- use of Buck Two, is around FPGA synthesis. So um, it, it's looking promising there. Yeah, and you know another one that occurred to me is uh, since Rust Analyzer came up, I don't believe that at the moment Rust Analyzer works with Buck Two. It, it has gotten way way better since. Okay. You 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 hesitated for correct reasons. Like uh, specifically, um, David Barsky has been working on this a lot lately, and I don't believe it is like perfect, but uh, it has significantly improved over the last like six months. Let's say. Um, okay, that's but, awesome. Yes, so. but it's a, it's, you're also not wrong in the sense of what you're saying earlier, right? Tools that expect cargo and are used to invoking cargo to do the things they need to do. There needs to be some sort of layer there, um, yeah. and that's complexity. Yeah, well, it, it, build times are, uh, it's obviously extremely important. Uh, it, it's all around that kind of that that developer flow and getting that feedback quickly. Um, and there, uh, there's, Rust gives us so much. Um, and uh, it also gives us the challenge of figuring out how to make our builds faster. So a, a lot we can go do. Um, this is a terrific discussion. Um, Sean, obviously done terrific work on our own builds and Rain, all of your terrific work on Hakari and getting that integrated and then getting to the root cause of this stuff. Um, and Steve, obviously, as you said from the top, like build systems have been uh, something that, that have been a real important part of, of your work for a long time. So um, this is fun. I think that, uh, and Adam, I uh, excel as a build system. I mean, you can love it. Yeah, I didn't have that in the uh, in the cards, but glad glad to check off that bingo card. Exactly. Awesome. Well, this is a great discussion. Thank you, everyone. Um, and uh, I know it's a, it's been a relief for everyone to have a discussion in which we didn't mention AI once. So good going. I was tempted to Hell a couple yeah. of times. I tell you, I was I was really I, very tempted to. Well, I can go into how how Facebook has started to use AI to figure out which uh, builds to run and so on. But <laughs> there, you go. there we go. I knew we were coming here. Yeah. I know. I just did it. I just did the thing I said I was going to do. All right. On that note, thanks everybody. Talk to you next time.